Serena Grassa podcast. We are your hosts, Carrie Wee and Kelly McVeigh. So happy to have you guys with us today. Hope you have a wonderful start to your week. We are happy to have Roderick Pauly with us today. He is the managing partner and chief creative officer at Mills James, which is everything from virtual events and streaming, live event creation production, commercial productions, digital media content, event and trade show videos, hospitality, audiovisual services. They do so much. They're based in Columbus. And Roderick comes to us today. He, he's been friends with Kelly for a while. And over the years, he started out um, as a musician and a singer, then ended up working on creative for Disney and Universal Studios. Um, then he landed in Ohio. More recently, he managed his corporate team all the way through the pandemic and now post-pandemic. And he shares the ins and outs of what he does. All right, guys, I'm so excited for you guys to hear this interview. Let's get started. So today we are here on Greener Grass with, I want to say, one of my dearest friends and someone that I look up to in a million ways. I feel like a creative genius um, right here in Ohio, if you can possibly believe that. And um, I had the opportunity of working with him on several projects throughout the years and got to know him um, as a friend as well. And so we're so excited to bring him to Greener Grass today because I feel like everyone's life is a journey, obviously. And Roderick, yours started in California. Um, And being a creative mastermind, I think sometimes people who are all over the you know, United States world probably like tend to go back to California when you have the creative mind you do. And you ended up right here in the Midwest with Kelly McVeigh right here in Ohio. So just start off by telling us a little bit about whatever you're comfortable with background on where you grew up. Um, and you know, a little bit, you don't have to say about your childhood, but a little bit about life in California. It has been kind of kind of an interesting journey. Um, I, I, I get that feedback a lot that most people, you know, gravitate toward California from Ohio, but uh, not a lot of people come here. But uh, I do love the people and I do, you know, uh, love Ohio so much. And Columbus has just, you know, become this incredible melting pot of creativity. And it's, it's just been wonderful. Um, I grew up in Northern California. Uh, I was born in San Jose, and I am uh, the sixth of uh, the Polly children. And uh, I had four brothers, one sister. And uh, I kind of started my creative journey uh, in music. Um, and uh, I started playing the violin, and I was awful at it. I, you know, uh, one day you wake up and you're like, I'm the best person in my you know fourth grade class playing uh, violin and I am awful. And <laughs> perhaps I need to try something different. Uh, and so I kind of got into uh, the, the, the brass world and, and learned to play trumpet. And that seemed to, to really stick for me. Um, and so I, you know, played it throughout junior high and uh, high school and, uh, you know, joined state honor band and, uh, was able to play on Austrian radio um, as, as a high school student, uh, which was a great honor. Uh, our band placed um, 
third in the world in this uh, international competition and uh, as such got to play on Austrian radio. Um, I didn't know the story. I, See, now I feel better. <laughs> I thought I knew all things. And I, and I had a solo and, uh, you know, uh, I still have, I still have the recording of it that, that, that my dad, uh, that my dad took, my dad, uh, followed me throughout like all of my kind of artistic pursuits and, uh, videotaped every second <laughs> of it. Uh, they used to call him captain video. Um, and in those days, you know, they had those huge cameras that he has to lug around all of Europe. So, uh, yeah, so so I, I was very honored to be able to do that and kind of parlayed uh, playing the trumpet into a music scholarship to San Jose State um, and got a full ride there. And that's kind of uh, where I got into more vocal music. And then I uh, apprenticed with a Shakespearean company and kind of got the bug for theater. I mean, I'd done theater in high school and uh, that sort of thing, but uh, this is where I kind of learned what you know, kind of professional theater was all about. And, uh, you know, started the journey to kind of become an actor and that transitioned into, um, you know, kind of becoming a producer in the theatrical world. And then that journey kind of, you know, led me to, you know, Universal Studios Hollywood, um, where I managed uh, kind of all the talent on the Hill. Um, We had 16 live show venues, about 500 actors and actresses on the um, kind of on the payroll at the time. Uh, and then I was recruited by Disney to, uh, develop some, uh, new entertainment concepts for them, um, with kind of a, uh, an imaginary spin to it. Um, and worked there for many years and then, uh, worked freelance for both of them because they're both kind of clamoring <laughs> to, uh, I know. How do you, I feel like in today's world, like you're talking, so you're, I'm not getting, I'm not getting a chance to talk either. One, I want to know when the last time you played a trumpet was. So, uh, interesting and interestingly enough, when I moved, I actually, um, uh, pulled out the trumpet and, uh, just, you know, uh, started to see if I still had my chops. I had my chops a little bit, but, um, you know, it would take me some time to get back. So like recently, yeah. Like a, like in the last couple yeah. of months. Okay. I'm impressed. <laughs> yeah. I didn't, I don't know if it was like a super long time or a short window. Okay. And then two theatrical, I mean, you are theatrical as a person. So <laughs> I think it's like ingrained in who you yeah. are. So it makes so total sense that you jumped into theater, but do you, how do you work for Disney and universal? I think in this time frame of the world, they would have like an ironclad, like legal document that you couldn't do that. So, um, I, uh, you know, after I worked for Disney um, for about, I guess about four and a half years, um, I decided that I was going to go freelance and did freelance work for Disney and then freelance work for Universal. And in the entertainment world, there's really, um, it's a lot more open than I think you, most other corporations. In Ohio. Um, yeah. <laughs> because, you know, I think everybody's, you know, worried about non-competes and everybody's worried about, you know, uh, everybody stealing clients and that sort of thing. But uh, with Disney and Universal, they were not, they didn't have any problem. They were just like, we want good entertainment. We know that, you know, this is your strong suit and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll work around your schedule and, and, and we'll do what we got to do. Here are the projects we would like you to work on. Um, so I was very, very lucky to, to, to have that opportunity. And, um, you know, um, 
I liked both of the projects. I was working for uh, Disney and doing a lot of children's entertainment, and uh, as you do, and uh, with Universal um, on some some more uh, not really adult entertainment, but um, <laughs> from teenagers and above, you know, a little bit different audience. You know, Roderick, I wanted to jump. Sure, I wanted to jump in because. Is it, is it, well, two things. Is it because they basically, with a freelancer, if, if they're not going to pay you exclusively, they haven't, they have no right to the rest of your time, basically? Yes. Right. Very much so, and but with, with both companies, um, they have some, you know, really strict, um, uh, intellectual property, um, agreements. So everything you, everything you do for them is theirs, unless it's, it's unless it's unless it's exclusively written. Um, so they were confident that you know whatever I was developing was going to be their, theirs. Um, so I don't think they they really worried about you know what was going back and forth. Right, right. And then also, um, you know that I live in LA and I live and work here in this in this what do we call it a mosh pit? Mosh pit <laughs> <laughs> entertainment. So. A mosh pit. I have a lot of friends who have over the years worked for Universal. I don't think they would have crossed over with you. When's the last time you were physically here? Was it over 10 yeah, years it ago? Was, uh, probably 2000. Okay. Yeah. Like I had 2002. Yeah. Is when I left. One of my friends like does the Maryland, like the Maryland Monroe. And she's been on that roster for like, I don't know, five, six, okay. seven years. And then. I have a friend doing the Bobatons for Harry Potter land. Oh, nice. And we talk about it all the time because the way that Disney and Universal's run with their talent, it's like we kind of step into working for a corporation for the small like time that we're there, you know, like the day, the week, whatever. And it's a, such a different world for all of us. Yeah, truly. Because we all work as freelancers and it's, I hear about it a lot because it's, it's a culture shock for a lot of artists. (laughs) So you mean like people out in LA carry, like they're used to being freelancers and all over the place. And then when they work for like a big corporation, like Disney, it feels like a corporate job a little bit. So what you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like I have one friend right now that just got accepted into like a stunt show at Disney and like, she couldn't make it to the one day they wanted her for like the orientation and they almost fired her. I don't think they did. Yeah. But like, she was like, what is happening? Yeah, and it's, it's like so supply and demand. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's pretty rigid. Um, yeah. Cause you've got, yeah, you yeah. know, 30 or 40 people coming in on the same day and you're trying to knock it all out. You can't make a lot of concessions for folks. Um, and that's just unfortunately how it works. It, they are true corporations. I mean, theme parks are machines, you know, and they have, you know, a certain amount of uh, projections about how, how many people are going to be coming in the park and all of those different things. And they know how many people they need to have, you know, from a talent perspective, you know, how many teams they need for each show. And it's, it's pretty, it's pretty stringent. Um, when, yeah. It's pretty rigid. Uh, Roderick. Okay. So sure. sorry. I want to ask this question. If, if you had painstakingly hired three girls through this, whole audition process for a stunt show and then the like lower down person at orientation almost wipes out all your casting because they can't make it to the orientation how does that go so so it's basically that um you're training three teams and you're training at you know kind of all of them at once 
Um, so you're not necessarily, you're, you're rotating them in, you know, as, as you go. So, um, basically I think, I think the, the fear is, is that if they're not able to commit to, you know, to a schedule and be able to, you know, Ah, to to be there, that they're, that they're not serious about it. Um, but it is really about, it is really about, you know, I I mean, you have a training staff and the training staff is going to be there for one day. And if you can't make that day, then we would have to bring them all back and pay all of the training staff, um, to, to train this one person. Um, so I think in, in today's world, most of those shows are outsourced. So it's not a Disney employee who's training them. So it's a company that Disney hires to do the stunt show. Let's say it's the same at universal. A good friend of mine runs like Waterworld um, and is responsible for all the cast there. They, uh, all the cast are their employees and basically universal just hires them to run the show. Um, however, you know, that company works for universal and it's kind of the company's job to make sure that all of those people are trained and they're safe and that, you know, they have all of the training that they need. So I think sometimes, uh, you know, and this may be the case in, in Disney, I don't know. Um, but there is only a finite, you know, amount of time that they have to train these folks and to bring back the entire staff, the directors and all that sort of thing may be, um, maybe difficult. Um, one would hope that they would have the flexibility of a day. <laughs> yeah. I, I did not mean to deep dive into that one point. Literally I had this conversation yesterday and, and me and Kelly talk about this all the time because Kelly's got a producer mindset and I'm trying to switch my gears a little bit because I, you know, I've been a performer sure. for 20 years. So like I first have a performer mindset. And so coming into these scenarios, you know, you have a different perspective. And so that's why I wanted to ask. Yeah. Listen, but I love Terry and I working in that way because I feel like we're both learning from each other, but how I think of going in with a client or how she thinks, or even the day of, we come at it at different ways and there's good to that. There is good to it. We haven't like had any problems, but like we are figuring each other out in that way. And I think it's good because we both bring different aspects and perspectives to the situation. Yeah, that's great. I think it's, I, I think it's really important to have, you know, those different perspectives. Um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, when, when I was a performer, I think I had, you know, a similar mindset to say like, Hey, you know, um, if, if you really want me in the show, you'll work around some things. Um, and I think that when you get into an environment like Disney or like a universal, it becomes, a job. It's like a nine to five thing, you know, and it's, it's, it's very much like, okay, the audience is going to be here at 9am and they're going to see a show and I need 10 people to see the show. So I can't work around one person that is part of the cast because I've got to put the show up. So I, at universal, we had a, a rule that um, we wanted to provide as much flexibility as we could for the performers so that they could audition for, you know, uh, roles in movies, roles in TV shows, and that sort of thing. And the rule was, if you were a part of a full-time cast, all you had to do was replace yourself. So you would go down the roster, and you would find somebody else to take your place that day. Um, but you could do that as many times as you want. You could do that as many times as you want. You could do it for weeks on end if you had to, because you had a gig. Um, it was never a problem. Um, but you did have to do that yourself. It, you didn't put it back on like the talent uh, manager, those sorts of things to say like, Hey, I'm not going to be here for the next two weeks. Can you find a replacement? 
Right. No, and it can be really hard as a casting person because, like, I think about how frustrating that must be, too, because performers, especially in L.A., just so... What's the word I want to look for? It's it's not a negative thing, but they're just like the next priority is always hotter, you yeah. know? It's it's just very fluid. You know, it's just a very fluid existence. And, you know, you have to provide the flexibility for these folks who are at the peak of their career. You know, these are talented folks you have. And, you know, we're very honored to have them as as part of the cast because they're so good. But you know that when you have really, really good people, that they're going to have many other opportunities. And you have to be aware of that. And you have to be, you know, kind of mindful of that. So we'd have a roster that was, you know, six people deep so that they could, you know, find somebody to, uh, to replace them um, when they had one of these gigs that we, you know, we, we hoped and knew they would get. And, you know, anytime, you know, a cast member would leave because they got a better opportunity, we were always, you know, absolutely ecstatic for them because that's that's why you're in la it's not to be you know beetlejuice it's or marilyn Monroe. it's it's, <laughs> right, it's right. to be in a motion picture or it's to be in a tv show or to get your big you know your big hit i mean there might be somebody out there that just really wants to be beetlejuice oh but... and they've done it for 30 years yes we've seen those folks yeah you know and that's their gig that's that's what makes them happy and and sometimes those are the greatest people in the world but you know um we want to provide the flexibility for those who have, you know, different aspirations. So Roderick being on, because I said like creative genius, like I, um, being in theater and then becoming a producer, like how did you find your voice to, was it that you were on these productions and you had ideas and you started sharing them and being more vocal or how did you, because I'm sure, especially because of Carrie, you know, we probably have a lot of people that are in Carrie's circle too. But then again, sometimes we joke that Carrie's circle is too busy in LA. Nobody cares in LA about Carrie's podcast. And we always joke that everyone's listening that are my friends. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, you know what? I heard recently that some of my friends are like, I listen to your podcast. I was like, what the fuck? Are you serious? (laughs) And they're like, yeah, I listen to sometimes. Um, I was like, oh shit, this is great. But how did you shift? Like, how did you go from being a part of the production to being the the one? So I think that, you know, for me, um, and, and some people feel, you know, very differently, but for me, it was all about the creative process. So getting a, uh, a role and then putting it on its feet and finding all the nuances to it and then actually, you know, doing that opening night or, you know, that first weekend was always very exciting to me. But playing it for six months or a year or two years or whatever was just not my gig. That was not, it was just the same thing over and over again. And I did not find that that was where I had passion. The passion was in creating it and getting it on, getting it on its feet. And so being a producer and working on multiple projects was always kind of more um, cohesive to kind of my mindset. Because once it was on its feet, I was like, oh, you're kidding me. I have to do this again, <laughs> like every night, eight times a week. Like, what are you, what, what's going on? Like, that was really not my thing. Like, I think I, I got more out of the process than I did about the performance. Um, 
And so I learned that, okay, there are people who within this same entertainment field or within the same theatrical realm, just do the creative piece, put it on its feet and then walk away. Um, and that's where I found that, that I think my real skill was, um, is in the creative part of it. And, you know, uh, while I love performing and, um, you know, definitely had some fun doing it and still do to some extent. Um, the real passion I had was the creative process and discovering all of these different creative processes, not just this one kind of field, but creative coming in many different forms, you know, whether it be video, whether it be an event, whether it be a special event or a, you know, kind of an ongoing convention type thing. Um, that's where I really loved, you know, really finding out and learning about a brand and being able to bring that to life, um, through an event, um, and then keep it fresh year after year or event after event. Um, and really kind of embody that brand through these different kind of, kind of moments in time. Do you feel like working for a big corporation like Disney or universal that you had the creative freedom that you maybe possibly do now and when, which we're, we'll get to next year we're here at now in life, but do you feel like you had that creative um, ability then? You know, I, I was really, I was really lucky, probably not as much at universal, but I was uh, very lucky at Disney that I had, you know, um, a lot of creative freedom. Um, <laughs> one of one of my claims to fame or a couple of my claims to fame, I think at Disney were that uh, we were developing um, kind of new entertainment projects for, for kids. And um, as part of that, we created this show um, called the fantasy fashion show for kids. And we created all of these theatrical grade uh, costumes that were based on, you know, classic Disney characters. Um, and the point was to, um, have kids have this incredible experience like, you know, the, uh, in park characters and be able to kind of dress up like their favorite character. And in developing those things, uh, we learned that very small kids didn't like to put like things on their head. Like they didn't want coverings or wigs or any of that stuff over their head. Um, and we wanted them to be able to participate as well. So we developed this thing called, um, the, these headbands and they were like, um, plush headbands. And, um, they were just, they were, they were like kind of a, like a normal headband that had, you know, kind of the bone in it. And, but they actually had the plush character on top. So let's say, um, we did like the hundred acre woods, uh, all of those characters like Eeyore and, uh, Winnie the Pooh and Piglet and all those sorts of things. And we developed the full costume, but the headbands actually turned into a product that the Disney store decided to market worldwide. And I think in the first year sold over 12 million units. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that became really popular. And then they sold them in all of their theme parks. And <clears throat> at the time when I was developing the fantasy, the fantasy fashion show, the Disney stores did not sell costumes year round. Um, so all the Disney princess costumes, like the original Disney princess costumes that we did, um, um, I designed and developed and they were so popular that, uh, they decided the Disney stores decided to, to market them all year round. Um, That's so cool. and, uh, 
um, it became 25% of the revenue of the Disney stores at the time, um, which was amazing because we all know kids love to dress Whoa. up, right? I mean, it was a simple premise. It was like no, a simple premise. You know, they had all these like, you know, um, trunks with, you know, I remember I had one, I had a big, you know, when I was a kid, um, my mom used to keep like all these costumes in like this, it was a plastic treasure chest and it had all these different like costumes and we would dress up and, and, you know, make fools out of ourselves. Um, but it was a blast. And I was like, how do we recreate that, you know, for kids? And it was all about taking home the play. It was all about, um, how do we create moments that parents and their children can engage with each other and just have fun and, you know, role play as Disney characters or just get them engaged in just, you know, playing together. Um, how can we provide that vehicle so that, uh, you know, these parents and children can have another way to interact and it's not just transactional, you know, it's, it's fun. Wow. Uh, Roderick, what year was this that you worked on that? Uh, gosh, 1998, 97. Yeah. Oh, a long time ago. Wow. Wow. So yeah, that's really you. That was you and your team really? then. Think of how, how much money you could be a millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If I had a, yeah, if I had a nickel for every time, but it was all, once again, it's all intellectual property that, uh, that, uh, the company owned and, you know, yeah, you're not getting residuals on those uh, no, frozen dresses, huh? I, yeah, it was frozen was a little bit uh, after my time, but <laughs> oh yeah, after <laughs> but, that's uh, right, that's uh, right. But definitely Cinderella, like the Cinderella things. You know, we put real like tool in them, and you know, had like you know theatrical grade, um, um, you know, silks and all that sort of stuff, just to make it feel really special. And one of the one of the innovations that we did with that was. Um, we made them in such a way that they would fit over your clothing. So kids didn't have to change into them. Uh, so that we would just, you know, like you could just tuck your collar down and then you could put it over your, uh, over your actual, you know, street clothes. Um, if that's, if, if you so wished. Um, and that was for kind of the theater piece of it, but the, the take home ones were, uh, were normal costumes. I love it. Wow, you've been in this industry for a long time. Yeah, I didn't realize old. that. <laughs> I, knew yeah. that. <laughs> I didn't. I did not mean to say it that way. I knew that. He, I knew that's where he was going to go. <laughs> yeah, totally Sorry. right. You're just like, did you know Walt Disney? Did you actually work? Did you work on Snow White? <laughs> not. No, not quite. No, I look. We're all kind of there. I mean, I disney was my first job as a professional dancer and we opened california adventure awesome. like i was i was performing cool. there the first day of it so you're, <laughs> you're not alone yeah <laughs> i was uh, i was still working at disney i think yeah. uh when they opened uh animal kingdom so i was there for the grand opening of animal kingdom um because it was pretty much all hands on deck you know with a big attraction like that and i worked in california and they flew me to you know, Florida to, to oh, work on the opening because cool. they had a big, you know, opening ceremonies and that sort of thing. So we did a bunch of special events on downtown Disney and that sort of thing. So I wanted to say that Disney is now moving like a huge chunk of their corporate talent, their corporate, not, not, not performance talent, their corporate people to Florida. And it's like a huge really? thing here. No, it's all the creative yeah, folks. Yeah, they're they're basically asking slash forcing people 
to move to Orlando because they're wow. Yeah, it's a big deal because I know a lot of Disney people out here. The studio that I work at, because I'm an aerialist, um, it's like in Glendale, Burbank. So it's like all those people exercise around there. And so many, it's like, it's a huge deal because, you know, moving your family, whatever, or else you lose your job. Yeah, that's... uh, Wonder why they're... Et cetera. Like, wonder what the... Is it like cost of living? Like, what is the purpose? Oh, it's all money, I think. Yeah, yeah. so they they probably don't want to have to operate two different, uh, you know, kind of two different headquarters for theme parks. And I think probably Orlando is, a, is, is bigger because of just the footprint. Um, and I mean, because they had offices all over. They had offices, you know, kind of in, in Florida. They had offices in Glendale. They had offices, um, you know, at the studios in Burbank. Um, so and, yeah, and Anaheim, Anaheim yeah, as exactly. well. Anaheim. Yeah. I mean the, the footprint, like the real estate footprint of Disney in Glendale is massive. Yeah, absolutely. It's huge. Like it's the animation studios, it's the salespeople, it's yeah, it's all it's production, it's a lot. So it's it's a big deal for them to move. I, I heard around two thousand of their corporate corporate people wow. and they have to make decisions. <clears throat> You know, that's a big deal to leave LA if your whole family is here. If you're sure. not, if it's just you, maybe it's a little different. But yeah, I just, you know, who knows where this podcast is going? Because I didn't realize you worked for all these places. And then, of course, Kelly, I totally derailed you. Sorry. <laughs> that's okay. That's I like to do sometimes. You derail me. These are all things, I mean, I love when we both jump in crazy, crazily. And I, and I do <laughs> wonder, um, and I, so Universal Creative has always worked out of Florida. So I wonder, I wonder oh, if that, that might be, um, you know, something that, that, you know, Disney just took a page out of their diary to, to, to maybe move folks there. But yeah, especially in today's, you know, economy in today's world, making people move to Florida seems counterintuitive. Yeah. It seems, it seems very strange. Um, yeah, they're definitely doing yeah, it though. And I don't think they could pull that I off. mean, I'm sure some people are excited, but but it, it's it's hard because, I mean, a lot of Kelly and I talked about this before, like this whole like after pandemic corporate lifestyle, there's plenty of companies. I just saw a letter that Elon Musk is not letting his people do any um, remote at all. Oh, really? Uh, I just saw that. Maybe it's fake news, but I don't think so. <laughs> so I'm just like, whoa. And, you know, Sony just did that. I have a friend who works at Sony. And basically they said they have to be in the office three days a week and everybody's pissed off. Yeah. I know. Listen, I think you let so, people work from home. And like, Roderick, you probably have a picture of this too as a managing partner of a company. Like everyone got to work home at home and now they're like trying to prove the reasons why it's better for them to work at home. Like you're going to, it's a two hour commute. You're getting two more hours out of me out of the day. Like all of that shift and pivoting, like it's a big deal across the U S yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a huge deal. And I think in, you know, the labor market is really tight. I mean, there are many more jobs out there than, than there are workers, especially, uh, you know, for frontline employees, um, you know, who are in constant contact with, you know, kind of your guests. Um, and it's, it's been a huge deal. I think people have found a new balance in their life. I think people have found, um, kind of a different focus, um, and a different way to do business. And I think it's very hard to unring that bell. And I think that, you know, we as a company have been, um, you know, struggling to kind of find what that stride is and what the right balance is. Um, because there is a certain amount of kind of collaboration 
that you lose when you're distant from each other. Um, and I, and I will say, you know, what we traditionally saw as collaboration, those moments are happening in a very different way now. Um, and I personally have, you know, uh, my staff, you know, pretty much all remote. Um, and you know, they only come into the office when they have to. Um, and you know, because of traveling and because they're, you know, uh, you know, during virtual shows and that sort of thing, you know, they're in and out quite a bit. Um, some people prefer to be at work because they have, you know, uh, <laughs> kind of a chaotic, <laughs> you know, a uh, home environment that is not real suitable to, to kind of being able to focus and, and do, you know, what they need to do, but others have deep work to do. They have deep creative and deep time that they just need to think. And, you know, that's not really conducive to kind of an open office environment, you know, where everybody's like tapping you on the shoulder and going, Hey, do you have a minute? Hey, do you have a minute? Hey, do you have a minute? And that kind of, you know, kind of ruins your workflow. So we're really taking it on a case by case basis. And, you know, some, some jobs work very well remote and some jobs, you know, you, you need that collaboration and you need, you know, kind of to have that feedback or you need to be there with the clients um, in person. So it's, it's a very interesting kind of, kind of world, um, you know, that, that has kind of presented itself to us, but you know, we're, we're trying to be as flexible as possible. Some people have, you know, childcare issues that we want to be sensitive to because some of those, uh, you know, uh, some of those opportunities have not come back. You know, they're having uh, difficulty finding some of those people to, to run those daycare centers and that sort of thing. So capacity issues there. Um, so we're just trying to be as supportive as possible for, you know, um, really moving toward, you know, where do you work best? You know, where can you do your best work? And those are the conversations that I'm trying to have with our folks is that, you know, where do you feel you're most productive? Because some of the graphic artists and scenic artists um, that I have work really well at home. And, you know, there is no um, real impetus for me to say, you got to be in, you know, the office it, it doesn't make sense. You know, they, they have, um, you know, the, the, the freedom to kind of move toward the work and, you know, some clients want to work, you know, they're West coast clients and they want to work a little later in the evening, then these folks can do that and they can kind of build their schedule as needed. Um, so it's, it's, it's been, it's been really interesting. The entertainment, as Carrie and I have spoken before, like was hit super hard. Events, entertainment, I mean, everything shut yeah. down. So nothing was going on. And how do you lead? So we, we kind of skipped forward in the sense that you now are working at a major production company. Should I call it a production company? It might be something beyond even a production company because you offer and provide so many different things. But in the Midwest, but a company that provides, you know, production, creative, graphic, all all of the parts and pieces for events across the United States and also in the world. That's how big of a, a production company that you all are. But you had to have taken a huge hit during pandemic. And how do you keep that caliber of staffing and events when there was a pause in 
you having clientele and working and events, I mean, that had to have been a really hard and challenging thing to lead a company through. It truly was. It truly was. It was, uh, it's been, it's been a rough few years. Um, you know, when, when this first hit, um, you know, uh, my fellow managing partners and I had to make some really difficult decisions about how we would survive. Um, because probably in, in, in the space of about, you know, two weeks, we lost all of our live events, of course, because no, you know, it was locked down. Um, and, you know, that was 50% of our business. And a lot of the folks that we had working for us were only, you know, kind of built for the live world. And so we had to make some really, really, really difficult decisions in, in the moment and uh, figure out how are you going to pivot the business. Um, but we did have to temporarily lay off, you know, about 50 associates. And uh, that was a... That was a really bad day to be a leader. Um, four and a half hours on the phone, making personal phone calls to all of these folks as a leadership team, um, and see, you know, how we could take care of them, how we could get them through this, and you know, um, move them, you know, a- as best we could, uh, kind of through this time, and uh, figure out how we could pivot the business. At the time of making those phone calls, there, the future was so questionable in general. It's not yes. like you could say like, oh, as things pivot in the next five months, like there wasn't an end date. No, no, there wasn't. And it was, you know, we didn't know how uh, we as a business were, were going to survive. We were very, very lucky because we had, uh, you know, these studios and control rooms and we could pivot to virtual events very quickly. Like it pandemic just, you know, crashed everyone. So no timeline on making those phone calls to tell people like Mills James has to pivot. I do think that there's an aspect in a lot of, for a lot of companies. And I'm sure that Mills James is the same that you had to pivot to a virtual space and get really good virtual. And I think now a lot of companies, I think this for drug selling as well, we've come on the other side of pandemic. And because we were forced to pivot so dramatically in such a big way, we are the best of both that we are the best live, which we always thrived in. But now we have this other, you know, platform that we can rock in a really solid creative way. But in that moment, did you I mean, I said, your creativity has always been such a thing that, you know, people are drawn to, you also had to emotionally be wrecked a little bit in the sense that you're letting go of these people that have traveled the country, the world with you to put on amazing events. You know, how did you dig deep to decide and really, you know, come out on top in planning virtually and going back to those clients and saying, okay, you, we understand this, but how, we can still bring this to you. Absolutely. And, and I think that, yeah, it was, it was very difficult, you know, um, as you know, I'm very empathic. Um, and I felt for every single person that we talked to, and it was really hard for me to kind of bounce back from that. But I, I really had to, as you said, dig deep and realize that the only way I could help these people was by pushing through it and figuring out a way forward. So that we could, you know, uh, bring them back, 
Um, and that was, you know, that was the, the kind of the guiding, uh, North star for us was figuring out a way that we could pivot so that we could, uh, you know, find a way forward for everyone. Um, and we basically started with the notion that, um, we had to remember all of the things that we had done in, in virtual meetings before and the things that worked really well were the fact that uh, we created a TV broadcast and we called it, we called it, you know, kind of broadcast television. And that's what keeps people engaged. That's what keeps people, uh, you know, watching uh, um, certainly movies and TV. And we realized that virtual events had to have that same aspect to it. They had to be interesting. They had to have great graphics. They had to be quick cuts. They had to, you know, keep people engaged. They had to have, you know, interactivity, all of those things. Um, uh, we kind of built a, uh, marketing plan and operational plan around, um, in order to be kind of a, a differentiator kind of in the marketplace. And I think we were a very early adopter and, you know, hit the ground running very quickly um, by kind of starting our own um, virtual events um, in telling people how to run virtual events. So we had a, a broadcast series uh, and worked with a couple of uh, partner companies um, to figure out what was, you know, what was the best way to do a virtual event and then educate people who were just scared to death because they had never done a virtual event before. And they were all event planners that have only done live events. And so we took it, uh, as a charge to start, um, putting the word out and training people and, uh, having great discussions with all of these different planners from different, uh, organizations, you know, some were DMCs, some were, um, you know, planners within organizations and just, um, trying to educate them as much as possible, share the knowledge that we had and be able to help them in, in, in whatever way we could. Um, so we started these, uh, <clears throat> these different kind of, um, uh, you know, videos that we would put out that were about how to run a virtual event. What are the things you need to know? What are the, what is the difference between a platform and, um, you know, kind of a construct because, you know, there are all of these kind of differing, um, differing information about, you know, what was a virtual event and how you did a virtual event and, you know, everything from, you know, WebEx to Zoom to all of these different platforms and kind of understanding what those things were and trying to get people to understand that. And as such, we were able to um, get a great market share because people, you know, saw us as, as kind of the expert in the field and kind of gravitated toward us to kind of guide them. <clears throat> and as you've said, you know, now lots of people are kind of in that business and lots of people are kind of, you know, in that space. But we did discover that, you know, especially in, you know, kind of the direct sales space, um, that we were able to offer a product that was more accessible to people with the same theatricality, with the same engagement. Um, and it allowed, you know, an event that would normally be, you know, 3,000 people, um, we would have attendance of nine to 10,000. Um, because they could attend virtually and they could <clears throat> kind of lever leverage their dollars better um, because they were not spending it for travel. Um, so some companies have 
you know, kind of stayed in that world or gone to definitely a hybrid world where they can still get those, you know, larger audiences, but they still provide that live experience um, for their folks as well. So ultimately, do you feel like things, you are stronger on the side of things because you have so many other options and moving into, well, leading Mills James now, did you have the ability to reach back out to some of those people and like welcome them back? Or are people in a different space now? Like the world has changed. And I think that's what's happened with a lot of companies and businesses. The world shifted, changed and pivot pivoted. And some of those people's, you know, that wanted that space and wanted that job now have moved on to other things. Absolutely. Like we've had so many folks who have moved to different industries and, you know, kind of in their hiatus, um, found kind of a, a different way forward. And, um, you know, there were a lot of folks who were starting new families and they realized that, you know, um, the virtual world provided them with kind of, uh, a, a different freedom that they didn't have when they were on the road all the time. Um, and I think they said, you know what, I don't want to go back to that world on the road. Um, I want to find an opportunity that net, you know, is, is, is more balanced. Um, and, you know, so, you know, they left the industry, but we were, um, very fortunate to probably of those 50 folks that we had to kind of say goodbye to for a little while, um, bring back 35 of them, um, in, in, in kind of a different capacity and uh, in different ways. Um, and, uh, the others, you know, moved on to different industries or, you know, decided to kind of leave the business, um, or, you know, decided to work freelance, you know, we're seeing a lot of that, uh, where people are just deciding to go freelance, you know, they figured out how to make it work in this time. And they figured out that the freedom that they, uh, enjoyed being freelance was just how they wanted to live their life. And, uh, and a lot of folks went to the client side, you know, wanted to be kind of, you know, in charge of their own fate and not, um, you know, I think they, they, they may have gotten kind of a wake up call in the fact that, you know, we are, you know, um, at the whim or serving at the pleasure of our clients. And that can be a difficult situation. Um, in a volatile kind of time and industry like this. So I think them jumping to the client side gave them some uh, solace that they wouldn't have to find out where the next, where that next gig okay, is coming from. So now from. on a positive side, because that all seemed a little, you know, terrible <laughs> in the real reality. I feel like Carrie and I, you know, started like <laughs> started the concept of ground rev. We were all excited. We had some meetings, we created the website we it pandemic hit we like completely pivoted started the podcast didn't even we weren't even actually really thinking about ground drive um just like living our best lives right carrie and then all of a sudden we started having people reach out to us like oh my gosh i'm having an event oh my gosh i'm having a party oh my gosh we need aerialists and almost in a we weren't quite ready for how fast and furious it came Carrie and I were just talking about Carrie's like, Oh my gosh, it's like a third job. I'm exhausted. <laughs> um, but I'm thinking too, for you now that the world is opened up, um, people see the, you know, how amazing it can be from a budget perspective, from, you know, all the reasons it's amazing to go virtual, 
but also people are missing live connections in person, the feeling, the, the, the space that a real live event gives you is so different than virtual, regardless of how I'm sure phenomenal Mills James does it. Are you guys, you know, feeling that as well, that people are ready to be in the room, in the room where it happens? We are, um, you know, we're, we're, we're definitely seeing people, you know, make that jump back to live. Um, and you know, that's, uh, that, that, that's certainly my first love is, 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 you know, live shows, you know, it's still, it's still not, you know, it's still not back. It may never go back to where it was. It probably won't. Um, but I think that people are starting to open up the world again. And I think they're starting to embrace, you know, that the connections that you can get from person to person is immeasurable and virtual, uh, as you said, as great as, as we can do it. And we certainly, you know, uh, pride ourselves in doing that at MJ. Um, but that live connection uh, is so important and it's coming back, you know, quite a bit, but there are a lot of, you know, impediments to that still. Um, you know, you have kind of some of the, you know, the, the rising numbers and people getting COVID, um, you, know, you have, you know, people, uh, uh, afraid of what, you know, what else may be on the horizon, you know, as far as, uh, you know, different variants. And so we have people who are hesitating. I think, I think 2023 will be, um, a really open year. I think this year people are still a little tentative. People are still being very cautious. Um, nobody wants to be the first one out there to have a super spreader super event. Spreader. It could be um, marketing. So super I think spreader event. <laughs> exactly. That could be the tagline. Um, but uh, um, yeah, somehow taking that spin and making it in a yeah, good way. Like, super I'm spreader sure event. Work with in it. A good way. Um, super spreading yeah. positivity um rather than actually yeah. uh the plague um but yeah so there's still some hesitation out there so we're seeing a lot of hybrid uh there's still you know lots of folks out there they're still providing that um and what we're trying to do is figure out how you know we can provide cost effective ways to do that um for our clients um but yeah, I mean, getting into the entertainment business and, and, you know, I am, you know, aerial artists are dear and near to my heart. Um, in fact, uh, my <laughs> staff is always going, um, can we not put an aerialist sure. in, in this show? Can, can we not do that? Because <laughs> I'm always trying to work it in. Because it's just, it's amazing. I mean, it's, uh, to me, it's just a very beautiful and elegant form of expression that, uh, you know, is, kind of unique and uh i always find somebody flying in the air i mean i wonderful. i agree with that 100 percent. Um, of course of course <laughs> of i course mean it's not a surprise of course you do yeah absolutely um i think a few things this has been one i mean i already knew you're amazing but now Carrie knows you're amazing and i think that <laughs> um there's so much to your life and really personal life, you know, professional life, all the things like we would love to have you back just because I think we dived into a little bit. I mean, starting how you started, uh, with band, with the trumpet and then traveling theater yeah. and being able to make that leap and that jump, 
to where so many people would love to make, right? To to being a part, uh, to be able to say that you worked for Universal or Disney is incredible and such a, a huge thing on your resume. But then I think we skipped the middle chapters and I think we can come back to that a little bit in episode two. We're going to have you back. You agreed already. So now you're, now you're locked in. (laughs) Now you're locked in. (laughs) It's just, um, it's not a surprise at all that you were able to help Mills James make those huge pivots. And I think the entertainment event space has had a really hard couple years. And I think it's good to hear that a company like Mills James, you know, here in Ohio, especially has been able to survive, to bring people back to, you know, I think here in the next three years, the things that you learned or all of us learned during pandemic, we're going to see you guys just continue to grow and thrive in such a major way. And, and you are definitely a reason that that continues to happen for Mills James and for anyone else that gets the ability to work with Roderick or Mills James. So I love that you came on today. We'll have to meet for drinks or dinner or something soon. And maybe we'll let Carrie come along. Carrie, you can fly to Ohio. <laughs> uh, <laughs> hopefully I'll come to Ohio for more than 24 hours next time. But Roderick, what I wanted to say is that I love that for our audience, I think they're being exposed to these guests that we have and that you can do art in so many different ways. Yes. I think that's really important because we don't all have to be starving and Did you say starving. Starving. <laughs> starving. I'm not saying I'm starving. Yeah, Carrie, starving. That's probably a little, I mean, it's probably true. No, I mean, no, it's like the old adage, yeah. like starving artists, you can turn a creative job yes. into something very structured and meaningful and creative every single day and the job market can be what you make of it. Yeah. I think, you know, so I think it's wonderful for people listening and, Absolutely. you know, looking at all these pe- different people's lives. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and and I, I feel very lucky because quite honestly, I am not qualified <laughs> for anything that I do. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> I, really, I do. I do. I do not have the training. <laughs> I do not have any of that stuff that traditional folks do. And I just, you know, I kind of found my way through doing and, um, you know, some people who are, um, you know, kind of uh, just at the beginning of their career wondering, you know, do I go to school and that sort of thing. And, and, and I've, I had great training after I, uh, you know, uh, had a, you know, stint at San Jose State. I, I went to the Drama Studio London and I got a scholarship, you know, through that Shakespeare company. Um, and so I learned kind of the theatrical side and the acting side of it there. But, uh, um, there's so many ways to be creative and there's so many companies that need creative people, um, so much, you know, from a branding perspective, from a graphic perspective, from video, um, you know, all the way to events, um, they need good people. And there are so many talented people out of there who, you know, uh, want to have their time in, in the sunlight, you know, uh, doing kind of the acting gig, but later in life want to transition into kind of a, a, a more leadership role. And that's definitely available to them. And it's definitely possible. And, um, we, we need those folks in, in our industry. You know, I, uh, I am always on the lookout for new producers. I always am, uh, you know, clamoring to find how we can bring somebody up through, you know, being a production assistant, which is where I started. 
you know, through, through where I am today. And there's lots of opportunity and the world will always open the arms to talented people. And I think that creative people should never limit themselves to, you know, kind of one avenue or one genre. Um, they can do yes. it all. Yes, I love this. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you, Carrie, as always, Absolutely. for being ah. the rock of all things. And- <laughs> Roderick, it's so nice to talk <laughs> to you. We will do so again. Yes, I'm excited to. Thank you for taking the time. Okay, thanks so much, Roderick, for being with us. Uh, loved hearing from you, and I will continue to to take any opportunity to pick your brain from here on out. Uh, you just have so much experience and it's awesome to know you listeners. If you would honor us with the five-star rating and a review where you listen to your podcast, it really, really helps. So just take a second and, and click five stars and just write us a sentence. It, it would mean so much to us. And if you check the show notes, you can sign up to get our newsletter. And then also there's a discount code for both you and Grace and Vibrant Body Company. It was amazing to have you. We appreciate you. We will see you next time. This is Greener Grass.